0: hi there my fellow game devs and welcome to the all things unity podcast my name is ruben and i'll be your host hey everyone and welcome back to the 15th episode of the all things unity podcast we will quickly continue our discussion on chapter three of the book called the pragmatic programmer in the previous episode i mentioned i was going to record one huge episode Well, but in the end, I decided to cut the content in two pieces and yeah, just to make it more easily digestible. Uh, In the last episode, we covered the topics of basic tooling. Um, This was all about choosing your favorite text editor and IDE and and terminal interface. And we also talked about the power of plain text and how it it currently uh, dominates our industry and even uh, unity 3d with its meta files and prefabs and scene files um they already predicted this uh, back in the day and we left the previous episode off right in the middle of the subject of debugging so that's where uh, we will continue right now so let's get to it so the next subject in the book uh, is all about debugging strategies i think it's great that they have a section dedicated to this topic by the way they start off by saying um, the following and i quote once you think you know what is going on it's time to find out what the program thing is going on end quote (laughs) isn't that funny right their first advice is to visualize your data and back in the old days, the values would simply be printed to the some console. And people still use this approach. I do too. I prefer to use the debugger, much more than the console. But if you need real-time information bound to, let's say, frame rate or maybe uh, physics, a uh, debug logging something to the console in Unity uh, comes in really handy. <clears throat> Just don't forget to remove all these logs before checking your code in and merging it to production. You don't want to see all these logs. Um, A couple of years ago, when I was building some Unity 3D application that had to run 24 7 in an amusement park, we couldn't allow anything to be logged to the console. Why? Well, because the log file became so large that it would slow down and crash the system. So when the app was running for X number of days, it would crash all of the sudden. If you restart the game often, this might not be much of a problem. But if you truly need to run it 24-7, you need to reduce logging as much as you can in production. Even in external assets, by the way. And I think nowadays you can even um, uh, disable debug logs, uh, I think, in the Unity uh, settings or preferences or something. Maybe as like a, a startup command you can add to the to the exit file for example i'm not sure but i know it's possible um but let's get back to the book through uh, a debugger you will gain much deeper insight into your data than simply logging parts of it um you think yeah yeah how often have you debugged something um set a breakpoint somewhere and then inspected the data only to find out the problem lies somewhere else lower lower on the stack. I bet it's more often than it isn't, especially when you combine it with TDD. Uh, The debugger can be uh, a really powerful tool. You won't need it as often and when you do, you will quickly find an issue since uh, all of the rest is covered in tests. And another strategy is to add tracing. And tracing are these little messages you might add to your code that say reach step one or health is a hundred percent Then while running the code, you can see the trace uh, and know how far the goat got uh, During execution before crashing Tracing can be really helpful in some situations, but it's still a primitive approach uh, compared to modern I- I- ide's capabilities and then next up uh Comes in the software world, the world famous advice on the practice of rubber ducking. Oh yeah. If you don't know about this, listen well. Because it's really simple. uh, And high effective above all. Uh, Yeah, and it's even pretty silly, by the way. So, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you have been debugging for hours. And then ask a colleague for help. And while explaining the problem to him. Uh, Him, the solution to the bug simply clicks into your mind even before you are done speaking I bet you have experienced this so Andrew and David came up with this cool approach called rubber ducking which is exactly the same as I described just now yet you talk to your silly rubber duck on your desk yes that's one of the reasons why so many programmers have these weird toys on their desks uh, they help us with debugging, of course. It's true, I've got a little flying spaghetti monster on my desk to talk to. All I have to do is to surrender myself to his noodliness and all the answers will, I will ever need will appear right in front of my meatball eyes. eyes. Um, having to articulate and verbalize <laughs> your assumptions will help you to gain new insights into the problem you're trying to solve. If you have never tried this approach, I strongly recommend you do. Um, But I highly doubt that anyone in the game or software industry, uh, for that matter, hasn't heard about the term rubber ducking. It's such a meme nowadays that you can't possibly miss it. And the next section is about the process of elimination as a debugging strategy. I think this is a great philosophy to tackle many problems. Just by ruling things out uh, empirically, you can narrow down on the problem. This is also done a lot in, uh, in healthcare, for example, most notably uh, nutrition. Sometimes in order to find out what is causing someone's uh, inflammation or some other chronic condition, one might try uh, an elimination diet to see what's bugging them. No pun intended, by the way. So first they rule out, let's say dairy. Then uh, nuts or seeds, next like uh, garlic and onions, uh, or uh, red meat, or even some fatty, uh, fatty foods or, or, or veggies. And in the end, people might settle down in like a Western a prize or Mediterranean diet, or maybe even some forms of uh, ketogenic or vegan, or maybe even carnivore diet. Whatever makes the person feel best. Um, you can take a similar approach to debugging. If you are debugging with some why some JSON serialization explodes you can't simply blame your JSON library because it's probably battle tested it's probably the garbage you're throwing at it that makes it explode so don't blame the generic software find the blame within uh, within your own code because it's most likely in there I do however remember uh, working in, in university with some uh, with this Meta programming language called Rascal. I've talked about this in the previous episode uh, as well, I think. The thing with this language was, though, uh, that it, the language itself was still heavily in development. I remember that we wrote some uh, like list comprehensions that did not behave as expected, and in that case, me and my team members were convinced there was something broken in the language, but that doesn't often happen trust me maybe when you use a gazillion npm packages you will find a shit ton of broken code um yeah just remember that this the flying spaghetti monster is one ramen away and andrew and david have a funny sentence about this as well and i quote remember if you see hoof prints think horses not zebras the os is probably not broken and the database is probably fine End quote <laughs> and i guess in the majority of cases uh, this is indeed true but there are exceptions to this rule indeed maybe you are working with the unity 3d beta program uh, well trust me you will most definitely find some weird shit at that point maybe in the il to cpp compilation phase uh, to just iOS like uh, 64-bit or something. I've encountered many obscure v- problems in beta versions of Unity. So I've learned my lesson uh, not to use beta in production unless I absolutely have to. Only if there's truly no way you might want to do it. But yeah, it, there's definitely uh, pros and cons involved with using a, like a beta program. And another thing uh, while trying to fix the bugs is that new problems might arise. I mean, have you ever fixed a bug and then create three new ones? <laughs> I bet you have. I most certainly have. And this happens sometimes when code is so tangled up like a freshly cooked spaghetti monster. You fix one thing and then the other thing falls over. Or even worse, uh, when you fix something over there... But something totally unrelated over here breaks. Uh, that's what Uncle Bob would call a mess. Uh, you need to maintain proper coding disciplines to create clean code. We've talked, uh, we've talked about that extensively. And uh, so listen to the previous episodes if you want to find out on how to write clean systems. But there's another thing you really want to keep track of, uh, and that's breaking changes that could be the result of a bug fix. This has happened to me in numerous cases as well, especially when writing backend APIs, for example. When you fix a bug, you find out you have um, to change some input parameter to a function or maybe refactor the, the, the JSON schema, for example. But at that point, it's already too late since some other stakeholders are already consuming that API. So you need to introduce a breaking change in order to fix it. The trick is here to phase out the incorrect parameter. Maybe throw an exception when someone uses the parameter. Uh, introduce the new one, and later, uh, and later once consumers have had the time to correct for the old parameter, delete it. You can add this very nice uh, obsolete attributes to these parameters or find some other clean way to communicate that the parameter should not be used. Um, If you create breaking changes as a result of a bug fix and there is no other way around it, make sure you postpone it till the next version. Uh, Don't just patch it quickly, uh, make a proper version so people will actually take notice. And the next section of this chapter, uh, Andrew and David talk about the element of surprise. By this, they mean the reaction you sometimes have that goes like, that's impossible. Well, it's not. And the fact that it happens proves it's true. Never assume that the code uh, has been in the system for a long time uh, is free of bugs. Because if you do, uh, you could be missing it entirely. Maybe the old code that you assume to work never got triggered in this particular execution path. Remember that uh, especially in object-oriented code, state explosion is a real thing and can cause lots of problems. Don't underestimate this. And um, I'll tell you a little story. I remember um, a story by one of my professors in university while studying for my master's. He taught uh, classes on, on model checking, testem and, and system verification. This was really interesting stuff and I've learned... So darn much from this single course It made me look at software From a totally different point of view But that's maybe uh, A story for another time Anyhow, he was telling us how he got Brought in in To model check the software on the Large Hadron Collider uh, Like the Particle Collider uh, Or some part of it at CERN in Switzerland There was a bug in that System which they just could Not find They ended up model checking the entire entire thing resulting in millions if not billions of states only millions and billions (laughs) only to find out that events did not properly bubble up to the surface so by adding this stupid missing event handler fixed the problem such a simple fix for such a large problem uh i think he and a colleague also uh model checked the dutch delta Werken, the famous dams uh, in the netherlands really great stuff yeah um but to get back to the back uh, back to the book um, never assume uh, because it makes an ass of you and me (laughs) well jokes aside don't think that old code that's battle-tested, cannot have bug. It has lower chances of bugs, maybe, but there still can be issues. So be vigilant. Don't assume, but prove it. Find where the data is coming from. Maybe the data is corrupt. Maybe the transformations that the data goes to propagates uh, problems that result in an error. Prove it. And when you find the bug, make sure you know when and how it happens. So you can write a proper fix not merely uh, fix the, the, the symptoms. So you know what to do and how the code behaves the next time uh, this particular code uh, execution path is triggered. And this also goes for situations when the bug is simply a result of someone misunderstanding requirements. Talk to him or her and explain how it should go. Don't be too aggressive over confron- uh, or confronting too. Um, remember that they were coding with best intentions and when people come to work in the morning No one thinks like let's add some bugs into the code today uh, Game development uh, is a team sport. So let's behave like teammates Um, So they finish up this chapter with a short checklist of how to debug and it's very useful And I'll simply quote the entire thing because I think um, They describe it very well. So here we go and I quote, "Is the problem being reported a direct result of the underlying bug, or merely a symptom? Is, it a, is the bug really in the compiler? Is it DOS, or is it just your code? Uh, if, you're, uh, if you explain this problem in detail to a coworker, what would you say? And if the suspect code passes its unit tests, are the tests complete enough?" What happens if you run the test with this data? Do the conditions that caused this bug exist anywhere else in the system? End quote. Um, And that's all they have to say about debugging. Mm, Yeah, that's a boatload of information. And I really like the way how David and Andrew go to such lengths uh, and talk about this in in depth. Even uh, like the strategies and the the psychology of debugging it's really great stuff and the next section of the book is all about text manipulation and as plain text is our most common means of building stuff it is really important to know how to manipulate it properly luckily there are languages that are really good at manipulating text like Python or Ruby or Perl and David and Thomas mentioned that these languages are really great for quickly writing a little script to to manipulate some text no need to do you need to convert some csv to json or vice versa hack some python script together to do it for you Um, you will only have to write it once and then you can reuse it for as long and much as you want that's really interesting stuff These scripting languages uh, are also very good for experimenting little programs for automating other kinds of processes since they are often on a higher level of abstraction. And I guess when you compare Python code to C-sharp code, the Python code will most likely look simpler and require less setup and infrastructure. I mean with C-sharp you need a solution file and all that other crap. But with Python, you just you know run that .py file through the interpreter and voila. Um, so learn some manipulation language. It will really help you out at some point, trust me. My bet will be uh, on Python since it's really accessible and pretty much the standardized in the software community. I think uh, everyone born after the turn of the millennium who has ever touched a computer nowadays seems to know basic Python. And on the other hand, Lua might be, why, uh, might be nice as well, since it has a foothold in the, the gaming industry. Um, I didn't think about this before, but I guess the ecosystem of tooling will be far greater in Python. Um, yeah. um, in the book, uh, they gave a couple of examples of uh, text, uh, how text manipulation comes in handy, and I won't go into them. Uh, if you want to know them, uh, maybe parse the full text of the book and extract them. It's on page 100 and 101. And the last section of this book is all, of this chapter, sorry, is about code generation. Uh, This is indeed something we need to know as programmers uh, since it will improve our work. Most likely you're using code generators but maybe you don't know. For example, if you're using an ORM, an object relational mapper, you might be using them or maybe uh, you generate API calls. Um, It happens that I wrote such a tool for Unity a couple of months ago. It's a pre-production library, but I can see its potential. I'll make sure to put in a link to the show notes. Um, But generally, code generators are used to remove repetitive uh, tasks or help you write cumbersome code. So it saves us time and allows us to focus on the hard parts of the code. Andrew and David separate two types of code generators, passive and active code generators, where the former is uh, generally used only once, like generating code from UML, for example, and the latter generator is run every single time like your, your build pipeline uh, is run for your game, for example. So let's zoom in a bit on passive code generators. Passive code generators um, save you typing as they are parameterized templates to generate output most of the time. Once the generation process is complete, they produce full fledged source files which you can add to your product, or project. Uh, these can be added to your project and when you, uh, which you can add it and then add to source code control as well. So, passive code generators have many uses, and among them are that Well, you can use them to create new source files, but you can also use them to insert all these annoying, like legal statements in your source files. Imagine what your life would be like if you uh, could not set up certain templates in your IDE or in the Unity 3D editor. You would have to add all this cumbersome junk all the time, even typing public class foo. Inherits from mono behavior, Protected, Override, Awake, blah, 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 blah. That would suck big time, so thank god we have these templates. And Andrew and David also mentioned that you can use code generators to translate code from lang- one language to another. I'm not so sure this happens a lot in Unity 3D land, but uh, I do know that in Java uh, land this is used a lot. It's even a core feature in IntelliJ to automatically translate Java to Kotlin, for example. You'll end up with Java-like Kotlin, but it will work and compile. But it won't be idiomatic, uh, or idiomatic Kotlin, which is perfectly fine since you can change it uh, while the tests are still running and compiling. Um, the next example they give in the book is that they changed uh, code from one templating language to another. Uh, for this book, like the pragmatic programmer, uh, they started working on a si- uh, in a system called trough. But after 13 sections, they decided they wanted to continue in LaTeX. So they wrote a little converter to move from trough to templates to LaTeX templates. This makes sense indeed. Uh, Maybe in a Unity context, you could convert HTML and CSS to UXML and style files that uh, the UI toolkit accepts, which sounds pretty neat by the way, Um, but it's probably already done somewhere. Maybe if you check GitHub or something. Um, Another example of passive code generation is to use them for pre-computing lookup tables for things that uh, are expensive to calculate at runtime. I think I've seen this done in like uh, matrix manipulation uh, uh, algorithms once, in uh, the, the CS50 class uh, given at the uh, Harvard University. Uh, I'm not sure though, but I think it was in there somewhere. Um, and the other type of code generators they talk about is what they call active code generators. These are the kind of generators that generate code uh, when as soon as things change, uh, they the code is remade uh, so think about what the uh, the ORMs are doing if you have ever worked with like a entity framework you know exactly what I mean once you change the schema your code to access them changes as well maybe it doesn't even compile anymore this can be very annoying uh, but it's very useful um, they also specifically mention the fact that active code generators are often the bridge Um, between the interop uh, of two programming languages. If one language needs to communicate with another, you might want to generate the API to do so automatically. This uh, comes back, this again comes back to ORMs. They generate an API to communicate between C sharp and SQL, for example. Um, Andrew and David also mentioned the fact that code generators sound complex but they don't have to be. They simply output text based on some input and it's often the parsing part that's most complex, not the generation part. Let me give you an example of a code generator I wrote recently. A while ago, I got frustrated by needing to implement yet another frontend to some backend API. I needed to essentially translate the DTO or schema files from the backend to the frontend and create some logic to send HTTP requests over the wire. I decided this was the last time I would do that. And thus in my personal time, I started working on a Unity 3D compatible OpenAPI generator. So it takes the OpenAPI uh, spec or the the swagger docs, uh, as some might call them, and then generate all the DTO files and even the web requests to call them. I've got a little alpha version working with limited functionality, but it taught me a lot about the different forms of code generation in .NET. It's a little uh, project I call Swagmeister and I'll put it in the show notes. And In my research on how to properly generate code for Unity 3D projects, I found there were, that there were essentially uh, three solutions. The first one is the classic T4 template approach. This is an approach uh, based on text templates which you can convert into any other kind of text you want. You can generate just pure uh, .txt files but also JSON, YAML, uh, maybe JavaScript or c or whatever code you want. Really any kind of plain text will suffice. The second approach is a more modern one and it's called .NET source code generators. These are also accepted in Unity 3D and use the Rosalind c Sharp compiler to do it. You can compile code at runtime using this. I didn't choose uh, source code generators as I really wanted to generate actual files that can be checked into source control. Um, this way I can also uh, properly version things. And the third approach is to, well, simply roll your own which I also did because T4 templates are not supported on .NET standard API compatibility levels. And I really wanted to support both. Um, I put all of this stuff in the show notes. Uh, if, if you think this is interesting, uh, go out uh, and check a blog uh, I wrote about this. Um, and the very last subject of this chapter is that, well, code generators don't actually need to generate code. This might sound counterintuitive, but generators can also generate JSON or YAML XML or other kind of like markup or plain text format. Heck, I'm currently working on some really cool UI generation logic, but I can't really talk about this just yet. But think about all the Swagger documentation out on the web or maybe even the DoxyGen or Java docs that are based on source code files. These all count as code generators, quote-unquote. So if you have never used or written any kind of code generator, look into them. They can really ease up your way of working and take over the cumbersome tasks for you. You only have to write the generator once. Remember that. You have to maintain it, so try and keep it simple, but still, uh, they will save you a lot of time. So by that, we and chapter three of the Pragmatic Programmer. And that's it for today. Um, What do you think about the topics discussed? What do you think about their approach to debugging and the mindset required? I think it's pretty cool that they dive into it in such detail. And don't forget about rubber ducking, or in my case, plush spaghetti monstering or, or, or something. And how about text manipulation? Have you learned a language to easily uh, manipulate text? Uh, maybe you just use C Sharp and its code generation solutions, we talked about just a minute ago. Overall, let me know uh, what your thoughts are about this chapter by sending me an email at podcast at allpingsunity.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave me a review and click some of the stars in there. Uh, that would be highly appreciated. Uh, if I'm not on your favorite platform, uh, you can leave me uh, a message and I'll try to get get the podcast on there as well. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening. Uh, see you next time and remember with unity we can do great things game over.